What's going on guys, it's Josh Huggett here and you are listening to The Vegucated Podcast. Welcome back for our third episode. Uh, first episode was an introduction, second intro- Second episode we spoke about Donald Watson and how he uh, coined the term vegan and in this episode we are talking about the beginning of animal rights. So we're tracing animal rights all the way back as far as I can find. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of the substantial moments that we went through and some of the moments that, you know, carried forward and we kind of still use them today. Um, this is my second time recording this podcast because the first one got interrupted by sneezing, coughing, dogs barking, uh, phone calls, wasn't happy with it at all. So I'm back. We're going to record it again. Hopefully this time we're not going to stuff up, uh, but I also can't promise that. Um... But yeah, first of all, I'd love it if you could subscribe to the podcast. It really helps me know that you're actually enjoying what I'm doing. Uh, we've got, I've got big plans for where to take this podcast with, you know, interviewing animal rights activists and talking about all aspects of veganism, whether it's me researching history or, you know, uh, carnist arguments, as well as just talking about veganism in general with vegans you know i want to talk to anybody doesn't matter your social class standing or you know follow account i want to have a chat um because everybody's got their own perspective everybody's been through different things so if you hit that subscribe button it would mean a lot to me that way i know you're actually enjoying it uh we got heaps of applause through the anchor app um subscribing on the apple podcast app if that's what you're listening to us through uh, is really helpful as well, especially on mobile. For some reason, they really like that. Uh, but yeah, so without further ado, we're going to start this episode. It's going to be a little bit longer, so buckle up. Um, yeah, just hopefully get this out just in time for people to drive home from work. So, the beginning of animal rights. I need a little bit of a disclaimer as well. I am in no way a researcher. I did not do well at researching in high school or primary school, so... Bear with me if I get some of this wrong, and these names are a bit ridiculous, even though this will be my second time reading them, I cannot guarantee that I will read it properly. Uh, But yeah, let's get into it. So, as far back as Aristotle from ancient Greece, he's the first person I could find that had anything to do with animals or animal rights in general. Uh, Aristotle was born in 384 BC and lived until the ripe old age of 62, which is actually you know, really old for its time, since as most people didn't make it past birth. Uh, 62 is a pretty good innings. Aristotle was an ancient philosopher who argued that animals lacked reason and placed humans atop the natural world. And yet respect for animals in ancient Greece was very high, some animals even being considered divine. So most of the arguments that we go through today, you know, uh, humans are the top of the food chain or... Uh, animals were brought here for us to eat, etc., etc., etc. Can pretty much be traced back to, to this guy. Uh, he is the one that kind of set it in stone and did it that way. But um, this is as far back as I can find in regards to animals having at least some form of respect. Being that dolphins and other similar animals were considered divine, showed that uh, humans had a respect for these animals. They you know, they treated them differently because of that. So that's still showing some form of respect. And that's 350 BC, uh, which is scary in a way, seeing that, you know, 300 years BC, animals had some respect, and yet we are still having to fight and fight for their right to life now. 
2,000 years later. 2,318 or whatever, I don't know. I can't do the maths. Uh, Philosopher Bernard Rowland states that the biblical Sabbath required a promulgated promulgated in the Ten Commandments required that animals be granted a day of rest along with humans. Correlatively, the Bible forbids ploughing with an ox and an ass together. According to the rabbinical tradition, this prohibition... My God, I cannot read to save my life and here I am starting a podcast. This prohibition stems from the hardship that an ass would suffer by being compelled to keep up with an ox, which is, of course, far more powerful. Similarly, one finds the prohibition against muzzling an ox when it treads out the grain, uh, and even environmental prohibition against destroying trees when besieging a city. These ancient regulations, virtually forgotten, bespeak of an eloquent awareness of the status of animals as ends in themselves, a point also corroborated by Norm Phelps. So even in the Ten Commandments, you know, animals are getting respect in, um, yeah, philosopher and mathematician Pythagoras was 580 C, 500 BCE, urged respect for animals, believing that human and non-human souls were reincarnated from human to animal and vice versa. Uh, Theo Pharistus, 371 to 287, one of Aristotle's pupils, urged, uh, argued that animals also had reasoning and opposed to eating meat on the grounds that it robbed them of life and therefore unjust. Uh, so this is the first instance I can find of someone actively not eating meat purely because it causes hard and, hard and unnecessary death. Uh, which is again is frightening, seems as it's been over 2,000 years of people still second guessing us when we say that we don't want bacon. You know, like this is 2,000 years ago, someone saying that they don't eat meat because um, it causes harm to animals, and yet here we are still fighting, and people still get surprised when you say you don't eat simple things. Um, fast forward to the 17th century, uh, 1635 to be exact to where, from what I can find, the first animal protection laws were brought into place. In Ireland, they brought in laws to prohibit the pulling wool off of sheep and attaching of ploughs to horses' tails, referring to it as cruelty used to beasts, which, you know, they use the term beasts, so it shows the disconnect between what they thought animals were, you know, the kind-hearted, they're talking about sheep sheep and horses here, which are pretty pretty calm animals, pretty tame animals, um, and yet they're still calling them beasts, so it shows that there's this disconnect there. In 1641, the first legal code to protect domestic animals in North America was passed by Massachusetts Bay Colony. The Puritans passed an animal protection legislation in England too. Kathleen Keat writes that animal welfare laws were passed in 1654 as part of the ordinances of the Protectorate, the government under Olivia Cromwell, oh, sorry, Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell disliked blood sports, which included cockfighting, cockthrowing, dogfighting, bull baiting, and bull running, said to tenderize the meat. These could be seen in villages and fairgrounds and became associated with idleness, drunkenness, and gambling. 
The opposition to blood sports became part of what was seen as Puritan interference in people's lives, and the protect the animal protection laws were overturned during the Restoration when Charles II was returned to the throne in 1660. So it's a bit of a back step. Uh, at least there were people starting to make headway and actually try for change. You know, we're finally getting some laws put in place here to look after animals rather than just having them, you know, before that, before there was any laws around, people would, you know, you could beat animals on the street. You could, you know, there was nothing stopping anybody from really doing anything. Uh, the great influence of the 17th century was the French philosopher René Descartes. Uh, from 1596 to 1650, whose meditations informed attitudes about animals well into the 20th century. Writing during the scientific revolution, Descartes proposed a mechanic, a mechanistic theory of the universe, to aim of which was to show that the world could be mapped out without allusion to subjective experience. His mechanistic approach was extended to the issue of animal consciousness, mind for Descartes, or Descartes, Descartes will stick with, was a thing apart from the physical universe, a separate substance linking human beings to the mind of God. The non-human, on the other hand, were for Descartes nothing but complex automata with no souls, minds or reason. Jean Jacques Rossiou. That's my fifth time reading that name and I still have no idea how to pronounce it. Uh, argued in Discourse on Inequality in 1754 for the inclusion of animals in natural law on the grounds of sentience. Finally, that beautiful, beautiful S word. Uh, by this method, this is his quote. By this method also, we put an end to the time-honoured disputes concerning the participation of animals in natural law. For it is clear that, being destitute of intelligence and liberty, they cannot recognise that law. As they partake, however, in some measure of our nature, in consequence of the sensibility with which they are endowed, they ought to partake of natural right, so that mankind is subjected to a kind of obligation even towards the brutes. It appears, in fact, that if I am bound to do no injury to my fellow creatures, this is less because they are rational than because they are sentient beings, and this quality, being common both to men and beasts, ought to entitle the latter at least the privilege of not being wantonly ill-treated by the former." So in today's language, that's essentially saying, although animals aren't able to f abide by our laws and, you know, live with us and, you know, buy a house, um, that doesn't mean that they're not, you know, they should be subjected to cruelty. So they're uh, both sentient beings, both us and animals, meaning that they should, they have a, a right to life and to be protected. Uh, four years later, one of the founders of modern util... I can't pronounce this word at all. A modern something. I'm going to post it in the description if you can figure out how to pronounce it. That's good for you. But the English philosopher Jeremy Bentham argued that it was the ability to suffer that should be the benchmark of how we treat other beings. Which again, 
is something that we still use today. You know, we use the word sentient a lot. Uh, the ability to suffer. If something's able to suffer, then they should be given a right to life. A right to, you know, live a life without being abused, unnecessary pain, etc. Whereas plants, you know, they don't exactly suffer. They're not sentient beings. That's why we can eat them. But that's a that's a subject for another podcast. Um, jumping forward now to the 19th century, and we enter a time where we saw an explosion of interest in animal protection. In 1821, the treatment of horses bill was introduced by Colonel Richard Martin, MP for Galway in Ireland. Uh, but it was lost among laughter in the House of Commons that the next thing would be rights for asses, dogs and cats. Nicknamed Humanity Dick, Martin finally succeeded in 1822 with his Treatment of Horses and Cattle Bill, or Martin's Act as it became known, which was the world's first major piece of animal protection legislation, which made it an offence punishable by fines of up to £5 or two months in prison to beat, abuse or ill-treat any horse, mare, gelding, mule, ass, ox, cow, heifer, steer, sheep or other cattle. Finally, we have some legislation and actual punishment for harming animals. It's only taken over 2,000 years by this point. Uh, it's, you know, it's a start. It doesn't actually cover all, it obviously doesn't cover all animals. Really only covers animals that people use. So if you have a use for an animal, then you can't, you know, or if somebody has a use for an animal, you can't abuse it is essentially what this law is saying. And you're, you know, you can get two months imprisonment or five pound uh, fine, which again at that time was a lot more. However, in saying that, Richard Martin soon realised that magistrates didn't take Martin's act seriously and that it wasn't being reliably enforced. So we finally get a piece of legislation into the courts and uh, nothing really happens, which is what's happening now. All you have to do is look at all of the factory farms, look at the cruelty that goes on, the exposed videos from all those great activists out there, and nothing really happens. They get a slap on the wrist, they get bored out, someone pays something. Uh, nothing's changed. Um, after the passage of Richard Martin's anti-cruelty to cattle bill in 1822, uh, a man named Broom attempted to form a society for the prevention of cruelty to animals that would bring together the patronage of persons who were of social rank and committed to social reforms. Broom did organise and chair a meeting of sympathisers in November of 1822, but the attempt was short-lived. Uh, two years later, in 1824, Broom arranged a new meeting in Old Slaughterhouse Coffee House, Old Slaughter's Coffee House, in St Martin's Lane, a London cafe. The group met on June 16, 1824, and included a number of MPs. They decided to form a society instituted for the purpose of preventing cruelty to animals. Uh, the Society of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, as it became known. Again, as far as I can find, this is the first animal rights group created. So this is really the benchmark of all of the animal rights groups we have now. You know, with the uh, anonymous voiceless, you've got PETA, protection. You know, all of those animal rights groups, and everything down to, you know, two six nine. You know, whoever. Um, they're all based essentially 
all comes down to this one group which met in 1824. So if you want to do some more research into them, it is the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Um, but yeah, that's the, the first group that I could find. Uh, it determined to send men to inspect slaughterhouses, Smithfield Market, where, li- where livestock had been sold since the 10th century and took into treatment of horses by coachmen. Uh, the society became the Royal Society in 1840 when it was granted a royal charter by Queen Victoria, who was herself strongly opposed to vivisection. Um, from then on, several books were published analysing animal rights issues. Uh, Percy Shelley, the English poet and dramatist, wrote two essays advocating for a vegetarian diet for ethical and health reasons. Uh, A Vindication of Natural Diet in 1813, and then a bit later, the On the Vegetable System of Diet, which is another book he read a bit later. Uh, Finally, we have some more advocating for not eating animals. However, as we're about to embark on a whole scientific journey, I really think... Uh, and really get into the nitty-gritty of animal rights history. I'm going to stop this episode here. Um, I feel like that's enough of a information overhaul for today. There's a lot of dates in there. There's a lot of long names. There's a lot of mispronounced words. Uh, that's a lot for you to kind of wrap your head around. So I'll put this off and I'll put this into uh, two, two episodes. So you'll have another episode. What Today's Friday, so another episode maybe Monday. Monday or Tuesday, I'll get the next one out. Um, but yeah, that's been this episode of the Vegucated Podcast. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it was pretty interesting to make. Um, you know, you don't get taught any of this in the school or, you know, not many people really talk about it. So it's really interesting to actually you know, dive into it myself and, you know, learn some of these things. Uh, but yeah, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. My name is Josh. You've been listening to the Vegucated Podcast. Uh, make sure you you don't forget to subscribe and hit that button down there and we will see you later in the week for the next episode take care of yourself bye